This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Asking questions, I swear, on everything is like the start to so much. It's the start to unraveling our biases and challenging them, being able to like walk into new opportunities. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we're going to look at the ways that the church in America has played a role in Black lives with justice educator and equity consultant, Alicia Crosby. Oh, man, today, you guys. Well, let me just tell you that at the end of this conversation, I told Alicia that I was sweating, like I had an armpit sweat, and I had to push my chair back and just stand up because, like, I had so much energy in my body. This is just packed today, absolutely packed with wisdom and clarity and candor, and my head just still feels like it's just zinging. So today we're taking an unflinching look at something that might make a lot of us feel uncomfortable. We are going to look at the church's role in the wholeness of Black lives. And without mincing words, this has been a place of profound failure for the American white church because the center of the American church remains white, straight, and cisgendered. And all kinds of people groups who fall outside of those lines have not been valued, much less centered. And this has had tragic consequences. And so having said that, what is learned can be unlearned. We can hand back some of the narratives we were given from the time that we were little. And there are so many good teachers that we can learn from right now. And so today I am absolutely grateful to have such a wise teacher who is here to help us wrestle with some of these uncomfortable truths, not just around the church, but around our individual role in it, around our own narratives, around our own bias. You might have encountered Alicia Crosby through her writing because she's prolific and her words have appeared in all kinds of publications. You might have heard her speak at a conference. You maybe met her through the Center for Inclusivity, which is an organization she co-founded to build peace at the intersection of faith, 
gender, and sexuality. A hard-fought peace, by the way, not an absence of conflict. Sincere and genuine peace. So wherever you have met her, or even if you're just meeting her today, Alicia offers such leadership for both people who have experienced spiritual and systemic harm in faith spaces and for those who have knowingly or unknowingly perpetuated it. She calls herself a sometimes reluctant minister, which is hilarious. (laughs) I completely identify. But there's no holding back her passion for people and for truth and for justice. Her mind and heart help us explore today and unpack identity and inclusivity and intersectional equity. Nothing matters more than this right now. You're going to learn a lot today, and I invite you to sit tenderly, and quietly as a listener today. Just a listener and a learner. We open our hands to what we hear. And one thing that Alicia and I talked a lot about is highly valuing the posture of spiritual curiosity. And I hope that is something we continue to cultivate here and on this podcast and in this community, that we are less interested in certainty and absolutes and far more interested in curiosity and possibility. And I think that's what you're going to experience today. And so with great delight, I'm pleased to share my conversation with the absolutely wonderful Alicia Crosby. Well, I just told you this, but my team and I really, really wanted to have you in this series, Alicia. So welcome to the podcast and thank you for saying yes to it. Heck yeah. Thank y'all for inviting me. I'm super (laughs) pumped to be with you in this time and the community that surrounds your work. I'm really, really excited for this time we'll spend together. Same. Would you just do me a quick favor before we kind of dive into a lot of the nuances of this conversation? And will you just tell my listeners kind of high level who you are and what kind of your basic story is, where you are, et cetera? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. Just that. No big deal. Tell you all the things. Easy. So who I am, I... That is a question I'm asking myself and like Mm. reframing. I think if we're talking about my work, the best way for me to talk about this is I'm a justice educator and equity consultant. So I have conversations about like the systems and practices and like just relational dynamics that like either heal or harm people. That's like the most succinct way I could probably get into my work. And so sometimes that means I'm talking about it from a justice perspective. Sometimes I'm talking to people within religious communities. Sometimes it's like an educational space or a nonprofit. Like it really is like varied. So that's like the scope of my work. Who I am as a person? Well, I'm like most recently a fiance. Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. I've actually been double engaged or super engaged as I'm calling it. So my fiance proposed to me first and we had this conversation when we were dating where I told her that I was going to counter propose to her at some point because of course. Um, And so, so yeah, she proposed a couple of months ago and then I counter proposed last weekend. Last weekend? I just got goosebumps. (laughs) What'd you do? Can I ask? What was your, what was your approach? (laughs) 
So I am a relatively recent resident of North Carolina. I'm actually a seminarian at Duke, but I asked my fiance if we could go for a drive and do a history tour of Durham, Durham, North Carolina. And so she's actually from the area. She grew up, she was born and raised in Raleigh and she also loves history. And so I kind of like tricked her into like being a part of the proposal. So I had her do what she loved, which is like talk about the history of spaces as as we drove around the city. And then we took a drive out to the country and then made our way back. And so I'd also gotten her a couple of presents that are very specific to our like geeky sides. When we had stopped to like grab a quick bite while we were out in the country, I gave her the first of the presents, which was a matching set of Mickey ears, except they were Star Wars Mickey ears. So hers had like the Millennium Falcon and like Chewbacca on them. And mine had like Darth Vader because I have like... I love for Darth Vader. I think he's actually a very complicated person and not the yes. true villain. Yeah. But then when we got back into the city, there was a pavilion that she had mentioned that was like really pretty at night and had string lights. I was like, oh, we should totally go there. Like, I just want to check it out since no one's around. And uh, so we went there and that's where I gave her her second gift, which was a pair of personalized lightsabers. Oh Um, my God. And so, because over the Christmas holiday, we had watched Star Wars together from like, like the prequels, which I know some people contest, but I think they're helpful to understand the story, Uh but the prequels, like the core and then the sequels. And so as she was tearing through this box that was like really like, tightly wrapped I snuck the ring out of my purse and like stuck it next to me and then when she had finished is when I proposed I told her I had another gift that was just for her because these first two gifts were for us and yeah and that's how I counter proposed in this pavilion under the stars and string lights that was so good I was really hoping I didn't screw it up (laughs) and she was very happy with it Oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing that story. We need like a little spot of joy and that delivered. I love the kind of nerdy packaging around all that. It's just Mm -hmm. delightful. Well done. I'm so happy for you. So I want to steer back into your work. You you kind of high leveled it for us, which was a really great description. When I look at what you do, I just think this is a woman holding and creating space for people who live at the intersections and don't feel safe Mm -hmm. or included in the center Mm -hmm. stories that our culture values. And so you, you speak truth, you hold power accountable. It's nuanced. It's complicated. It's probably exhausting. Can you talk about how specifically you moved into this work? Did you always have some sense this is going to be my work in the world or did it kind of come to you? I absolutely did not know this was was, what I was going to be doing. It did kind of come to me. But one thing I want to kind of push back in terms of phrasing is I don't create space, I cultivate. And the reason, yeah. So the reason why I say that is like, I think of creation, I mean, like sometimes we do create, right? Like, I think that like we engage in like co-creative process with Mm -hmm. like God a lot of the time. Sure. There's like nothing there. And then we bring parts together, right? So there is sometimes like purely creative energy, but more often than not, I think we actually do the work of cultivation is that there are things there and we work to make the connections and like amplify what's already existing in a space. Oh, that's Um, so good. What a good distinction. Thank you. And that you're right. It's already created. It is there. It exists. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of cultivation.
So speaking of cultivating that, obviously anyone who walks and lives outside of the white, heteronormative, cisgendered narrative of the Mm -hmm. American church Mm -hmm. has a really interesting and important story to tell about their faith journey. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if we can start personally with you. Would you be willing to give us a high level view of what your faith journey has been like, what your relationship with the church has been like? What is the body of believers you've been surrounded by through the years? What have they looked like? And how has the like capital C church impacted and affected you? I think at this point in time, it's fair to say that I am ecumenically promiscuous. I don't know where I first heard that phrase. It's not something I came up with on my own, but I heard it somewhere. Thank you to whomever said it like years ago, because it totally fits me. I'd cite you if I could. I think that's a good way to describe like what my background is as it relates to church big C now. I grew up in the Black Baptist Church, yeah. Missionary Baptist to be more specific, in New York City. So I'm a, originally, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, a native New Yorker. After I left the church of my formation, my dad actually pastored a church in Harlem that actually split off and became kind of like non-denominational. After like my dad, um, that church project, you know, just kind of came to a conclusion because all churches aren't called to be together forever. We transitioned into what is arguably one of the larger, it is, I think, the largest Black church, if not Black evangelical church in New York City, but it's also one of the mm-hmm. biggest ones in the country. Those churches in earlier in my formation, and as well as a couple I'm about to mention, were definitely more theologically conservative. I was far more, cons- I mean, I wouldn't self-describe as conservative now at all, but I did grow up really conservative and had been the understanding that or had the belief rather that faith and politics went together. And so as we're entering now into like my college years and my faith journey, I was like a part of the college Republicans, which is something a lot of people don't know about me. Um, Yeah. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, no, most people don't. So when I went to college, actually the first church that I attended there was an Anglican church. And I joined this church specifically because they were non-affirming, they were non-LGBTQ affirming. Because this was a point in time, um, I went to college in the early 2000s, or yeah, early mid, however you put it. But this is when the Episcopal Church started ordaining LGBT bishops. And I aligned myself with the church because of where I was theologically back then. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Right there at that moment when you Mm -hmm. chose a denomination in a church specifically for its non-affirming stance, Mm -hmm. feel free to say this is none of your business and I'm not answering it, but where Mm -hmm. were you in your personal sexuality at the time? I'm wondering how those steps held. Yeah, that's what I I was. Oh, I was repressed, like deeply repressed. I tried to come out when I was in high school had a couple of conversations with friends that went like swimmingly, had a conversation with family, did did not. And I was like, oh, so my family said I'm not actually bisexual. I now identify as pansexual and or queer. But like my family was like, no, like this is like, you're confused. I'm like, oh, I guess I must be confused. And so I tucked it in and like shoved it down and suppressed. And yeah, that was my life yeah. actually for a number of years. So yeah, so Anglican church, 
After that, I was in a white Pentecostal church that split and became a non-denominational church. So it's very evangelical in nature. When I graduated college, like I'm telling you, like my church history is like long. When I graduate from college, I end up in another non-denominational church now back in New York. And that is significant to know because I worked there, I ministered there, and I attended church there. And yeah, that that was a very interesting time of life. And the one, honestly, where I have a lot of religious trauma that is stems that from. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got religious trauma, like, going all the way back. I'm the yeah. pastor's kid, yeah. right? So, like, there are things that we see about, like, the inner workings of, sure. like, not just, like, our individual churches, but, like, denominations and church culture right. and the intimacy that, like, we have. And, like, honestly, the secret keeping that these families who are, in, like, pastoral families, what we see and what we witness means that a lot of us walk around with a lot of pain because we witness mm-hmm. the pain of others intimately. Totally just by proximity to who our parents have been called to be. Right. So worked at the evangelical church. Then I ended up in a Nazarene church for a season. After that, I was hanging out with the reform kids for a little while. After that, I ended up, yeah, (laughs) that was a short season, but it was a meaningful one. I met some really, really dynamic folks there. Mm. But like, so at this point now, like after I left that church that I worked in, I'm getting to a place like where like there is some degree of like theological like progression and like there's this challenge taking place. So the pastor at the Nazarene church was actually a professor. And so we would have like these really like, Mm, like, like it was heady, like heady, yeah. meaty conversations and dialogues. And even though there are some places like that were still like theologically conservative to moderate, I was thinking about justice in ways that like felt good to my soul. Mm, mm. And I am just like eternally grateful for the ways in which that church one helped me heal from some things, but also question so much. So yeah, it was after the reformed, I went to an evangelical covenant church for a really brief mm-hmm. season. Then I ended up moving to start grad school in Chicago. This is grad school right. the first time. I'm in grad school the second time now. Yeah. I went to a Methodist church for a season. And at that point, I finally got to the place where I said, you know what? Mm-hmm. The institutional church isn't for me. Yeah. It's for a lot of other people. Mm. There is meaning mm. and value and beauty. And I had to come to the place where I could say those things. So I was like, burn sure. it all down. That's right. And then I pulled it back and realized that, you know, sacraments and ritual and the gathering and the consistency of those things is so beautiful and needed by so many people. But that's not what gave my soul life. Right. Like I could like pop in and out, but like, I couldn't any longer be in a space where I couldn't ask questions, like when the questions emerged and when there was like such a rigid order of service, such a tight order of service where I couldn't just like talk to the, turn the person next to me and have a conversation. So I was asking questions. I think like kind of all the, like the entire times I'm traveling from place to place, like when we have journey, when we travel, it's because there's something that we're not finding where we are. For me, like I ended up in all these different places and have like this really like when I tell people I'm ecumenically promiscuous, I mean like y'all yeah. see my journey. Like yeah, I've been around. Joke. I got a <laughs> been a lot of places. Yeah. But it's because there were questions about community and power and shared power specifically that weren't answered for me in the spaces that I abided in until me and God got to the place where I realized that I had to go outside the doors of an institutional mm-hmm. church 
in the congregational setting to find what it is that I needed. And then this brilliant thing happens all the while, like I'm in scripture trying to like validate this, right? It's just like, God, I feel like I'll be sinning if I'm not like in a church totally. every Sunday. Yeah. And then I was like, yo, looking back at the early church, this is what they did. There were people who were still going to temple every week because that was a part of like their spiritual formation and the way that they honored God and the way that they honored themselves. But then there was this whole other like, you know, pocket of the believers and the followers of Jesus's teaching. Yeah. They couldn't go out. I mean, some of them elected to be outside the doors, but some of them couldn't go in the first place That's right. because of the identities that they held and because mm-hmm. who they are and how they chose to live in the world and how, not even how they chose, but how they had to live in the world. Like the temple wasn't a place like that was going to be spiritually life given to them. And so Jesus went to them. And so when we look at the formation of the church, we've always existed in and outside of buildings. And That's like, right. and I, And I think that that's the thing that I celebrate and then I'm like really pumped about because it's not a matter of like either or like I like I'm glad that I got past the pace and honestly had friends push me past the place where I was in that whole burn it all down mode because I recognize that there was a degree of reclamation of like identity as a follower of Jesus that I could take hold of when I realized that people like me have always been a part of the body of Christ always so powerful. Like that gave me butterflies in my stomach. I just, I'm thinking about how many people just heard you walk through that and, and say that in plain terms and probably felt a million pounds roll off their shoulders. Mm -hmm. The, the sense of duty and obligation and should shoulding around institutional church attendance and involvement is mm-hmm. so high. I mean, you mentioned it. I know it too. I mm-hmm. I went to church three times a week as a fetus. Mm-hmm. And so Hard like just the powerful theological framework that the people of God have been in and out of buildings since the beginning is so liberating. Like mm-hmm. what a beautiful and a wonderful thing to say. And mm-hmm. I also really appreciate your generous posture toward the organized church and and toward people who still find a lot of meaning and depth inside of that. Oh yeah, um, I mean, they're my siblings. Like how dare I be in a position because of what my need is, try to take away what their needs are. Like, and I had to get to a place of humility in myself where I recognize that. And I think that sometimes when we're in the burn it all down place, it's because of like the profound like violence and, and harm that we've experienced in those places. And we want that thing that hurt us to go away. But this is where healing work is necessary. And we can get into like a whole like conversation about that. Because if we're being real, us having conversations about like healing from religious trauma and like naming it as like trauma and naming the things that happen to us as violences, that's a fairly emergent conversation. I mean, people have academically been having these like talks about things for a while, right? But like in terms of like our public discourse, like things that's like, things that are available to like regular, regular people like me and you and like in your listeners, this is stuff that we're just getting our hands on now. And so like, you've got a lot of like theologians and pastors and counselors who are really doing the work of trying to identify resources in all these different like spaces to deal with this. I remember a few years back, I had a conversation, um, I was on a panel for clinicians. So when I tell you that my work takes me a lot of places, y'all, I'm not joking. Yeah, so I'm like in this room full of like, you know, therapists and psychologists and like what have you. 
And we're talking about mindfulness, but then like the issue or the question of like religious harm comes up. And I asked them, I'm like, okay, so show of hands, who in this room has had any education about religious and spiritual trauma? A couple of hands go up. Yeah. And so this is showing me that in like the places of formation, and I already knew this, like part of my background is in psychology and like social work. That's like part of like the studies that I've undertaken over the years. I know that they're not learning those things in their classes, but a few of them were able to say, sure, I've studied this. And then I asked a follow-up question. I'm like, who here in this room has actually confronted the ways in which religion has hurt them over the years, like in terms of your personal work? Mm -hmm. And very few hands went up. And so then I like kind of, you know, gave them this thought. I was like, okay, so you're telling people to do their work and you haven't had done your own. So is it possible to consider that by you not committing to like doing your own work and honestly not having the resources to do that, you may be taking your biases over into your practice. Wow. And it's been like, for, and I've kept in contact with a, a few people who were a part of that session and that helped them get on their healing journey. It's just like asking questions, like asking questions, I swear on everything mm-hmm. is like the start to so much. It's the start to unraveling our biases and challenging them, being able to like walk into new opportunities. I think, you know, if I was going to like self-describe as like who I am, I'm a professional question asker mm-hmm. and yeah, like asking questions of myself changed my life. And like, that's what I want to do in the world is like ask questions to help people like enter into like the fullness of who they are. I'm deeply receiving what you're saying right now. We like so many people have been on the receiving end of so much religious trauma. Mm-hmm. And because it got wrapped up in this notion that people in spiritual authority were to be trusted and not questioned. Mm -hmm. It's like a, an absolute roadblock to the healing process. And so Mm -hmm. I know what we did is probably what a lot of listeners do. Just bury it. You just bury Mm -hmm. it. You try to move on to the next iteration of church, which is what you described so perfectly earlier. Just this Mm -hmm. like wandering mistress of where am I going to find the wholeness of, you know, and the fullness of God and what kind of faith community. And so I thank you for bringing up that the necessity of spiritual healing from trauma and for naming it, because that is what it is mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that strikes at the heart of our wellness when we have been spiritually mm-hmm. traumatized. Nobody, people don't talk about this enough. No. And I think that like, honestly, if we're going to like now bring it back into a conversation about race, I think that that's an imperative that we inherit from like white religious spaces because Let's they're not curious. That. Let's talk about the intersection of the white American church and Mm -hmm. white supremacy Mm -hmm. and what this has meant historically at all the way to currently for people of color. And Mm -hmm. let's talk about the the pain points and then we'll Mm -hmm. sort of dig into the nuances of how to, of addressing it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the thing that I was just saying, and I will reiterate it again, one of the big issues that I have and then many people have if they like sit with it about the white church is it's not a curious place it's a Mm. place that relies on absolute like honestly any imperialist like space and I think that we can call like supremacy there are resources that we can look at like you know without getting like too like deep in the weeds about like how imperialism functions right like when you have an entity 
that seeks to control like and like, culturally, sociopolitically control something. It relies on absolutes because it gives boundaries around what is or isn't permissible and creates an outgroup. And I think that that's some of what white Christianity and specifically white American Christianity has done. And so curiosity is a threat to its existence. That's right. Even curiosity about self, right? Like even if you like want to like take conversations about people of color off of the table, like just indigenous practices to white people, right? Like where did yes. your family come from? Like, who are your people? Like, like, what were their religious practices? How did they merge these things if they were Christians within, like, their the articulation of their Christian faith? If they weren't Christian, so then what were the practices that they held to be true? And how did that help them make meaning of the world? These are things that, like, the majority of, like, white Christians don't know how to do. And not only do they not, not know how to do them, when you have people who are, you know a part of the African diaspora and Asian diaspora and who are an in indigenous peoples of the Americas and what have you, like the ways in which like we experience God and the world and ourselves that weren't within like the scope of what like Christians wanted, like white Christians right. wanted us to explore. Those things got not only just suppressed, but called demonic. That's right. So, you know, there are so many people right now who are going back to like, you know, looking at nature and our connection to it and seeing like what nature tells us, what the stars tell us about like what's happening in the world. But that's called demonic because that's it's right. astrology. But like that's that's an impulse that comes, I think out of like a very specific type of Christianity. And, not, and it's not even just like what happens in this moment, right? What's happened in this moment, it's got a lineage. Mm. And that lineage is one of suppression for the sake of control. That's right. It's a very reliable approach, very predictable and mm -hmm. not without precedence. And mm -hmm. everything you're saying is zinging me right now mm -hmm. because I wrapped my arms around spiritual curiosity as an adult. Uh, mm -hmm. That was absolutely not available to me as I also grew up Baptist as a young adult or as, definitely as a kid. And so it's interesting because as you said, some of the practices around either just being a, a spiritually curious person, willing to examine our own hearts and minds and souls and faith walk as well as our systems and our theologies. So being either spiritually curious or learning from all those different traditions that is so punished. It's such mm -hmm. a, it's such a punished behavior. And, and the narrative that I heard around that posture of curiosity toward faith was of course, how dangerous it was. You know, it's mm -hmm. the absolute slippery slope and yeah. uh, mm -hmm. we were putting everything cherished on the altar of doubt and arbitrary interpretations. But, Interestingly, and I believed all that. That I was mm -hmm. that's kept me scared away from it for long enough oh, yeah. because I don't want to be at odds with God. I'm like, well, Same. I don't know that Same. And but once I kind of stepped into a place of spiritual curiosity and I rotated so many new teachers <laughs> into my mm -hmm. life, completely different voices, totally different faith experiences, absolutely different perspectives, whole new systems of faith and theology and doctrine and interpretation. It's not at all that. The opposite has been true for me. I have had, mm -hmm. exper I have experienced absolute spiritual flourishing. And so I'm like, oh, that was a lie. That whole thing it, was a lie to keep mm -hmm. us in control, as you just said. 
And also it was a lie for the sake of someone's profit. And that's a thing that we can't escape is like when we look at like systems of supremacy, we also need to look at profitability because somebody is either socially profiting off of off of suppression or they are materially profiting. And so there are entire industries, like y'all know what it is. There are books, there are conferences, there are platforms that are built off of like the expression and the articulation of like certain types of like theologies. There are like, buy this book series where you could learn da 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 Like somebody is making money and or gaining social capital. They're being placed in a position of influence off the sake of you not being curious because those systems of supremacy rely on the myth of scarcity, that there isn't enough. There's more than enough to go around. I mean, like, you know, so whether we're talking about like Christian supremacy, because that's a thing, if we're talking about racial supremacy, if we're talking about economic supremacy, right? Like billionaires can get it too. Mm. Like if we're talking about anything in which there is a group of people pit above others. We are now talking about a myth of scarcity that we don't have enough to share in this together. Mm-hmm. And bringing this back to the church, this is like one of my favorite things about the church ever. And it's been this way my entire life. I always, always, always love communion. And mm-hmm. it's as an adult that I get why I love it so much. The reason why I love communion so much is that the table is a place of equity. And I think ultimately, like, this is the thing that we're working towards. We're working to a place of equity, that when we're speaking about how we orient our bodies, right? Like when you're talking about ability and disability, the table kind of challenges that because like when people gather around the table, you don't know who has what capacity to do what. When everything Mm -hmm. is laid out on the table, you don't know who brought what. So you're not asking Mm -hmm. questions about like, you know, money and power or whatever, because the food is on the table, all you know is they got there somehow. And I think that like, that is the thing that encourages me about the table is like they're like tables are also kind of a universal thing. Like the majority of cultures have tables in some capacity, whether it be a sacred table, a communal table, a work table, what have you. But when we Mm -hmm. gather around it, there's like something that can be done. There's like a coming together that happens. Sometimes there are arguments, right, that happen sure. at these tables because there's a proximity to one another that we share when we're there. But I love it because I think that mm. there's an equity that God calls us into where even like we have to have these thorny conversations about like why it is that I wasn't invited here before or like why it is that you tried to like kind of gatekeep at the door that led to the table. But it can happen when we're together. That's right. So one thing that you do extraordinarily well as we grapple our way toward equity i mean when we put that that is that is our aim that is at the end of the road that we're walking toward in the meantime you are gifted at curating safe spaces for people inside a faith community who need them most i'm thinking specifically where my first exposure to you was at Evolving Faith Mm -hmm. last year and you created the sort of POC space, which was so instructive to me. I learned so much just from its existence. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit, why it's necessary, Mm -hmm. what it means to the community and 
why curating safety along the way as we work toward equity, and we're going to talk about that next, but Mm -hmm. as we work toward equity until we are there, the need for like safety and connection and protection is so real. So I am so grateful that you actually use the word protection because I actually abhor the idea of of safe space. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I use such a strong word because almost every time that people say this is a safe space, they're making assumptions about the needs of another person mm-hmm. and without engaging in like the work of curiosity. Okay. And I think that when, so like the framework that I use is one that I developed um, through my work with my former organization, the Center for Inclusivity, like we developed something called protective space where we were curious and continuously are are curious about one another and what our needs are and like, and understand that needs shift Mm. and that we have the ability to be responsive to one another's needs as our time together goes on. And so I don't use personally use safe space language. Yeah. I actually have written on this for like Evangelicals for Social Action. I've talked a little bit about it in a piece on allyship with them. But yeah. like, yeah, there are too many assumptions that come with safe space. And like, we've mm-hmm. got to stop being, one of my deep desires is actually to push people to stop making assumptions around what is or isn't safe for other people and That's instead good. do the work of asking. Hmm. So mm-hmm. that being said, you know, that space for that that I helped to curate for evolving faith was something that was asked for. Mm-hmm. So Jeff and mm-hmm. Sarah and you know Rachel when she was still with us, yeah. they sat in conversation and consideration about like what evolving faith had been its first year and then what it needed to be moving forward. And they're like, you know, we need affinity space where people of color can go. We're not sure what it looks like, but we know this is like, you know, your jam. This is like what you do is you help right. cultivate these spaces. Right. So like, would you enter into a partnership with us um, in order to do this? And I'm like, heck yeah. Like I yeah. think all of y'all are dope. So absolutely. <laughs> Too often when people have spaces that are inclusive, they forget about like the fact that affinity is also needed. Sometimes we share mm-hmm. identities and experiences with other people and need to be able to lean in that in order for us to enter into inclusive spaces where people come with different experiences and identities sure. more fully. And so that is the importance of affinity space. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not a supremacist like notion, like as some people would try to frame it. Mm-hmm. No, sometimes you need to let your hair down. Like the yes. way that like we're talking now may not be, you know, and this is because we are both speakers and podcasters and writers, right? There's shared experience around like how Jen and I are in conversation in this Mm -hmm. moment. But if I'm with someone who has like very different experiences, my tone and like in the way that I show up is gonna be different. And that can be exhausting. Like code switching is so tiring. And sometimes in affinity spaces, whether it be with people who we have relationships with or people who we just met who just happen to have some of those like, you know, shared identity markers. It can be like being able to catch your breath. It's like, oh, I don't have to like deal with people asking me like a million questions about this thing that they don't have access to by way of their identity constellation. That's right. It's a place where we can breathe. And that's ultimately mm-hmm. what the POC space became because, you know, we were in a white dominant space which is good because there was a lot of curiosity in that room. People came because Mm -hmm. they were looking for something. And Mm -hmm. so that allowed for everybody, regardless of like their racial identity, to be able to like show up to evolving faith generally. 
But mm-hmm. what was cool about that room for people of color is that folks weren't asked questions that were intrusive about their identities. They weren't mm-hmm. asked to do labor because there were like a lot of people who were well-meaning, but are asking complete strangers deep things. Totally. And it's like, y'all don't have relationship enough to ask this. Like, mm-hmm. just because this person is black or brown, like, doesn't mean that they are here to serve you and That's your right. curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, you have speakers who will like, you know, open up because yes. they have been compensated to do that. That's work. right. It's not the responsibility of the person who's in the seat next to you to give you what you feel you need in the moment. That's incredibly selfish. Mm-hmm. And so that was a lot of what was happening there. And like in the wisdom of of the curators of Evolving Faith was that they knew that that was a thing that had happened and will continue to happen if they didn't have a space for people to go. And that wasn't the only affinity space that was there. There was also a space for parents when they needed to take their kids somewhere. There were places where people who had different like sensory needs and needed manipulatives where they could go. But like, that's, that's the cool thing. Like when we curate these spaces, we're able to address the needs of people yeah. Of, of a myriad of people. We're acting like there isn't just like one set way of being or orienting or concerns that need to be elevated. There are multiple things that we can hold together. And that's why affinity spaces are important. Yes, that's so incredible. Yeah, they had a um, LGBTQ kids space. There was a bunch of teenagers and college kids there in that community. And I just thought that's a powerful witness to that sense of community, these sub-communities where they can be completely protected and have affinity. So I don't know quite how to ask this question, but you perfectly explained the need there and Mm -hmm. why that is where your shoulders can finally drop down and your jaw can unclench and you are not being tasked with irresponsible asks to be everybody's mentor and teacher and educator. When we look at the church right now, let's just say the American church in general. And this is a this is kind of a clunky question because there's so many slivers of the pie. You know, it's this is not a monolith. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a challenging to kind of address holistically. But when we look by and large, and mm-hmm. more or less, there's white church and black church. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's not a lot of multicultural space. There really isn't. That's that's more rare than than anything. And how do you suggest? We balance, on the one hand, this very real felt experience of affinity spaces where you are just free to be, to be understood, to be loved, to be cherished, to be centered. This matters. To be represented. This matters. And then this idea of what could be possible if our faith communities were absolutely diverse and mm-hmm. represented at every level, top to bottom, with variety and with diversity of thought, of race, of theology, of experience, that feels so whole mm-hmm. and the spiritual possibility and that feels like a real wonder. Mm-hmm. Is that is it possible? Should it be possible? How mm-hmm. do we balance these two very different faith experiences? I'm not really sure what the question is in mm-hmm. there, but... Is it possible to have both affinity spaces that matter and are necessary, as well as really diverse and inclusive churches where we are honestly like the kingdom of God? Mm -hmm. I think that this is why there is the church, big C, the church universal. Mm -hmm. 
in the same way that we look at the scriptures, right? Like you had the church in Corinth and you had, you know, the church in Rome and you had the church in Jerusalem. You had all these places. They were culturally nuanced spaces. They didn't share the same exact culture. They didn't function the same way. And maybe there were believers even then who had some things in common. And when it made sense to, they came together in a community and shared that. They even then didn't like force themselves like, yes, there are some things like core-wise, theologically, that they try to be like, all right, bet, let's make sure that we're on the same point. But they weren't like, we must make cookie-cutter churches that do X, mm. Y, and Z. That's so, true. like, why That's are we true. trying to do it now? It's true. Like, so there's, like, cultural distinction and beauty that happens in Black mm. American churches and then even African churches, right? They're not the same thing. Right. Caribbean totally. church, they do their own things. Even within the scope of Blackness, there's diversity in the way that our church communities worship. Sure. And it's beautiful and awesome and cool. And it can still remain distinct. There's no need for us to be like every church got to be multicultural. And we all have to like follow the same set of, you know, or, or try to blend our theologies, even though there are people who are out to do that because it makes sense for them. It makes sense for their community. It's part of who God's calling them sure. to be as a congregation. So I think we make space for that, but also understand it's fine and also reflective of not only just like the church, but also the image of God that like all of these people can like show up in like their cultural distinctions with their theological flares mm -hmm. and it be beautiful. And this is just like another facet of who God is to us and for us. Okay. I love that answer. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that position as opposed to this constant shoving everything in sort of this amalgamous way mm -hmm. and it just not working. And I think for the reasons you just said, mm -hmm. because everybody loses their distinction, which is godly. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, even as I say this, there is a warning that I want to give. Okay. And it's that this is where also fellowship is important. Mm -hmm. So like, one of the like real dope things about like growing up in the Black Baptist church, particularly in like New York, was fellowship. I mean, it was like a pain in the butt back then, but like I actually kind of like I can celebrate it now. We had sister churches that we would like travel around the city and around the surrounding area and visit with. And so you got an opportunity to hear different styles of preaching and see people worship in different ways. And it was a way of us celebrating what like these other people, like within the family of God were doing. And sometimes there were things that were like shared and sometimes it was different. As we, yes, honor our distinction, it's also important for us to like, to get back to that place of fellowship where fellowship just doesn't happen between people within the same congregational spaces for those who like attend those spaces. But like where you reach out to like, you know, your siblings down the road, right? That's like right. if you're if you're a Lutheran church, reach out mm. to the Episcopalians, reach out to the Methodists, mm. the Baptists, the evangelicals, build relationships like where your people can find ways to come together. Yes, through worship, but also in just like general community seeking. Like, why are you operating like you don't have family out here and you do? It's good. We're a family. So Let's get back to that. We call ourselves a family of God. How about we actually act like a family and spend some time together? That's so good. Oh my gosh. That is profound. I'm going to ask you one last question before we land the yeah. plane. So speaking of right now, in this really interesting moment in time, we are seeing white people decide, mm -hmm. a bunch of them for the first time, 
to figure out what it means to become an active participant in anti-racism and allyship, at least more than I can remember seeing in my adult life. You have a very good word about allyship for newbies. You say you cannot name yourself an ally. That title is bestowed upon you. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit more about it. Absolutely. So this goes in the same bucket that I put safety in, in that like you are making a whole heck of a lot of assumptions when you call yourself someone else's ally. When I have been told that someone is my ally, first of all, it's usually from a defensive posture when I tell them that I don't need what they've given me. Again, this goes back to like curiosity has been thematic in our conversation today. So like allow curiosity to sit with you in this place as well. Right. When you want to be allied with one, someone, right? Let, let's hit, turn this into a verb. When you want to like, you know, be in that space in which allyship is a priority, you need to actually know people. Like this is why it's a conferred title. When someone, and I call someone my ally, which is actually a very, 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 very rare thing, y'all. It's because they know me. And they know my perspectives. They know my needs. We have talked about what is or isn't permissible for me as a person. Mm -hmm. They know my ethics. They know my politics. And they know, like, how I speak and how to honor my voice in the world. Mm -hmm. You cannot do that work without relationship. That's right. You can't. And it doesn't matter if this is about racial allyship, if it's about the allyship with sexual and gender minorities, with persons who are disabled, with, you know, anybody, with elders, youth, whomever, you cannot call yourself another person's ally. They tell you, they give that to you. It is a gift and it is one that can also be rescinded because Mm -hmm. there are people who I would have like said, oh, this person is my ally. And then they did something that was outside of alignment, right? Alignment Mm -hmm. is a key principle, I think, in allying with someone. And when you are out of alignment with someone, that allyship can be taken back. Like you no longer represent You don't have that authority anymore. You've done something to compromise the integrity of our relationship. And as such, you don't get to speak for me any longer. Mm. And so like humility is like, is a big thing here. Like humility to be curious and ask folks like, Hey, I realize this is a thing in the world. When you have a relationship, just don't go talking to strangers about this stuff, y'all. But when you have a relationship with people, like the people who you call friends, who you call your beloved, who you actually like, are invested in. And I think it's fair to say that investment is like a key thing because don't cold talk, talking about someone's your friend yeah. and you met them one time. Right. Like that's yeah. not friendship. Yeah. Yeah. But for those people with whom you have intimate relationships in your world, it's appropriate. And I think necessary to ask them, Hey, as it relates to this, this, you know, thing in your world, right? Like this identity, this, you know, set of experiences that you're like, that you have to deal with oppression around because like our world isn't as equitable as it needs to be. What should I be doing? How do I best represent your interests when I go into spaces? Mm. And, you know, I mean, I've done this work for other people, right? So I, even in being a queer woman, I am a cisgender woman. And so that means like for my trans friends, like when I Mm. want to like do things where I'm like partnering with them and like in kicking oppression in the face, it means that I make sure that my email signature includes my pronouns because mm. it, it puts people in the practice of asking mm. people what their pronouns are. Oh, that's good. It's, it's also a feature of like my work, right? So when I'm in spaces, you know, where I'm doing my facilitation or consulting, I'll ask people their pronouns. Even when I do something like a Zoom call, which many of us have gotten very familiar with during yes, the COVID have. season, 
I try to make sure that my pronouns are present there in order for people to not make assumptions about other folks' identity and to model. And so those are like things that I do after having had conversations with folks who told me, hey, this is helpful. And another thing is like your allyship, like should it be conferred upon you is different between relationships. Because what I may ask of you as, you know, a black queer woman from, you know, a major city is not the same thing that your friend living who has, yeah. you know, a similar identity constellation, but lives in like in a rural space. They're sure. not gonna tell you the same things. And so your your allyship can become more dynamic, your accompliceship, your co-conspirator, yeah. like if we're gonna like, you know, actually move away from the language of of allyship those things become more dynamic as you hold more and more people's interests in like in mind and understand that like confronting oppression and dismantling these systems that like keep people like bound and 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 thwarted and living in their best life that keeps them from flourishing in the way that they could it requires a multitude of responses which means that you have to like consistently be curious you got to ask That's questions right of yourself and like it also of your complicity, which is also something that people don't necessarily want to do because it means yeah. that they got to admit that they got it wrong, but we all get it wrong sometimes. It's about like, how do you like confront that, deal with it and keep it moving and try to stop doing those things. Oh my gosh. Okay, Alicia, I cannot believe how good this conversation has been. This has been absolutely incredible, like wisdom and insight. I'm going to go back and listen to this as soon as we're done. I want to ask you, if you don't mind, yeah. three quick questions that I'm actually asking everybody in this series. This first one is probably a long list, so you're just going to have to pick. So mm-hmm. here it is. Here's the first one. Who have been some of your greatest role models? That's a hard one because I don't know if I really have role models so much as I'm just inspired by regular, regular people I meet, but like, I'll meet people and they'll tell me their stories. And I'm just like, oh my God, like, I just, I value that so much. And I love you so much. And so like, people are my role models, Hmm. people who are willing to be vulnerable and share a story. What a great answer. Awesome answer. Here's the next one. Again, this could be a a mile long, so you'll just have to choose. But Mm -hmm. who are some of your your personal favorite artists or teachers or leaders that you would like people to be listening to and learning from right now? Yeah. So, okay, this is like, uh, I'm very excited because I actually get to talk about friends. Good. I think some of my favorite conversation partners who are also all of those things that you mentioned the first I'll mention is Ana Jelsi Velasco Sanchez. Ana Jelsi is just a brilliant human who is also an artist. She like paints and draws and is just awesome in that way, but is also a writer. I think another person is Jamila Jones. One of her recent projects is actually creating greeting cards that are, they're available on Etsy, but they're like queer greeting cards where they're like brilliant in that, like one of the cool things about like queer community is like the level of like care that like happens mm, like within, within the space. Asking people if they've had enough water 
or like, you know, asking people how they've rested. Her cards are doing that. So like, this is just like, she just loves to send cards. And so she just started making them. It's super cute. Another person I'll mention is Candace Simpson, who is a dynamic preacher. And I think that preaching is an art and Candace is an artist and also a writer. Let's see who else. My co-host of Hope and Hard Pills, Andre Henry. One of the things that's missing a little bit, like, now like in terms of in terms of popular culture is like movement songs like songs mm. like for the movement and for the moment and like yeah. andre is like really dedicating himself to like tapping into that energy sitting with people like sitting in his work as an organizer and like producing music that talks to people's pain one other person that i will mention and this goes back to like the art of preaching and i just think that everyone needs to hear her sermons all the time is Naomi Washington Leapart. Okay. Naomi is hands down one of the most anointed, gifted ministers that I have ever encountered in my entire life. Wow. And when she speaks, I listen. Powerful. Everybody listening, going back to Alicia's point earlier, this is a really simple way to just go to the transcript page and follow every one of these people. Just start there. Just follow those suggestions, start listening to them, learning from their work, discovering who they are. Boom. Like just begin rotating through some of these incredible thinkers and leaders into your, the daily diet of your social media, which has an accrued effect mm -hmm. of learning. So, okay. Last question, Alicia. Yes. Everybody gets this question in every single episode. It's from Barbara <laughs> Brown Taylor. Anyway, this is her question and answer it literally however you want. So yeah. what's saving your life right now? Love. Yeah. Love. This is a really difficult season, like on levels, right? Like I've just come to the realization that like I won't be able to see like the rest of my family, like, you know, my family back in New York and in like other parts of like, you know, the East Coast. I'm not probably going to see them until next year because it's just not safe right now. But love, the love that we share is like, it's grounded me. So even though I can't hug my mom for a while or my dad who's like lives out of the country, I'm not going to be able to see him or my little brother. The fact that like our love like travels across like telephone calls and WhatsApp and like, you know, whatever medium that we choose sure. to, to communicate, like that love is still there. The love of friends who send care packages, shout out to Jenny, <laughs> who send care packages just because they want me to know yeah. that I'm seen. The love of my partner who like makes it her business to show up in ways that make sense for me, especially as like, you know, I'm dealing with the emergence of a chronic illness. Mm. Like she oh has been so attentive to me. So yeah, like love is a thing that's saving my life right now. And like all the people who work to show me tangible expressions of love, like that's what's saving me. Gorgeous. Last, can you tell my listeners where to find you? Yes. So I've made it easy for y'all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Almost anything that I have, if you look up Alicia T. Crosby, like you'll find me. That's so Alicia, yep. AliciaTCrosby.com is my website. I'm findable on Instagram, Facebook, 
and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby. My Patreon is Alicia T. Crosby. The nice. only thing that's distinct is the um, is the collaborative project that I work on. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier. And that's the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. And you can follow that on Apple Music or Simplecast. Perfect. Thank you for coming on today. I am deeply going to think about and sit with several things that you said today that some of which I heard for the first time and profound amount of insight that you brought to this show today. And so I'm just really, really thankful for who you are, who you are in the world, who you are in your own skin and the amount of commitment that you bring to your work. It's so just dedicated and single-minded and it's really, it's a marvel to look at. It's a marvel to watch and learn from. And so I'm so happy that my community is going to be listening to you and learning from you. And so thank you for your labor today. I really, I receive it and I honor it. And until we can like get out of this quarantine next time I see ya, just like big <laughs> full frontal hug. Oh, yay. I love hugs. I love hugs. So do I. So do I. So just, I'm just trying to warn you. Be prepared. I receive it and I'm ready. Thanks, Alicia. I don't know about you, but I just, I heard some really important things today that I'm going to be thinking on and considering and learning more about. Nothing appeals to me more right now than leaders who are clear and decisive and direct. I think we've done enough hand-holding and cushioning and propping up and making everything slightly more palatable to the majority culture, and it's gotten us absolutely nowhere. And so I am a thankful learner today from Alicia and her wisdom and expertise that she brings to bear in the world, but definitely into our space today. And so as promised, if you go to jenhatmaker.com underneath the podcast tab, you will find every resource mentioned today, including the entire transcript of our conversation. If you'd like to read it or cut and paste parts of it to share, but every person or website book, that Alicia mentioned today, we will have linked over there for just a one-stop shop because there's it's a lot to gather if you're just like walking around your neighborhood or driving in your car. Definitely follow her. Definitely sit under her leadership from here on out. And come back next week. We continue to really push in closer and tighter to the various systems and structures in our culture right now where equity and equality is not yet realized and what it means to be an anti-racist. And so I just cannot thank you enough for your maturity and your willingness to learn as we open up this conversation series even further. There's so much more to come. Just don't miss a single episode. I really invite you to share these. Share these with your friends and family. Share these with your pastors. Share these on your social media sites. I know that you do. And so thank you for being so highly engaged. So Laura and her team of producers, thank you greatly. And so do Amanda and I. And so with great love, thanks for joining us in another important conversation. And we'll see you next week.